Oh, wow, it still doesn't feel real that I'm uh, leaving, and so uh, thank you, Pastor Daniel, for those words for the church. Uh, I just want to say thank you for uh, hiring an imperfect young man out of Bible school and by being gracious with him as I still continue to learn and still seek the Lord's leading in life. And it's a bittersweet day. I'm excited to go, but I am sad to leave. And I want you all to know, every last one of you, that I love you in Christ deeply, and I will miss you very much. But that is not why I am here today this morning, because this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And so in light of that, I want to take some time out of the book of, uh, to take a look at the book of Philippians in the fourth chapter. So if you have your Bibles or your iPhone or whatever you're using this morning, I invite you to go ahead and make your way to Philippians chapter four. And as you're turning there, I have a question for you. What brings you peace in the midst of a broken world? What is your prescription for peace in the midst of this broken world that is imperfect, full of broken people just like myself? Because there's many different ways that people can go about answering this question, and the world seeks to answer it with several different various options. Some people in the world, they turn to the weekend as the meaning of life. That instead of valuing the weekend as a Sabbath rest from work, by contrast, they endure the grind of the week for several days of liberty to rage to deafening music, binge drink, hook up, and ultimately numb themselves to the pain of life, hoping that this monotonous adventure on the weekend at the vanity fair of pleasure can provide them a small measure of peace. But it will not bring ultimate peace. Other people, especially us in our younger generations, we oftentimes turn to technology as our prescription for peace. Instead of just using it for helpful tasks and for occasional entertainment purposes, we allow the technology in our life sometime to become all-consuming, to the point where when we forget our cell phone, it's a point where we become anxious, to the point where maybe the only thing that will calm us down after a crazy time this week is binging an entire TV season in one sitting, maybe allowing it to become the digital escape from any situation that we determine is undesirable. Whether it be disengaging from family, friends, we seek an artificial reality that is more palatable than life itself. But this will not bring us ultimate peace. And many of us here in the Northeast, myself as well at different points, we often sometimes turn to work and productivity and achievement as an escape from the challenges of life. And we leave the wisdom of a good work ethic behind maintaining a work-life balance and we instead trade it for a life that is enchained to a calendar of productivity and accomplishment and praise. Seeking perhaps to escape from the frustrating situations by a never-ending situation of avoidance. Knowing that in one lifetime we can never accomplish everything possible. But this too will not bring us peace. But I'm not here to preach hopelessness because while these things do not bring us peace, I do think that there is something that brings us a real, palatable, and lasting peace, but it is not found in this world. And that is why the title of our sermon this morning is Standing in the Peace of God, because that is the answer in the midst of a broken world, to stand in the peace of God. And that is what I am here today to advocate for all of us together. And we're going to be taking a look at the first nine verses of chapter four of the book of Philippians. And as we do so, we're going to take a look at three main points, three lessons for our lives that help explain and identify what the peace of God is and how it affects our life. Because it is a wonderful thing, it is a life-giving thing, and so it is something that we should seek to understand 
in our lives. But before we dive into God's word, I'm going to pray as well real fast. I know Pastor Daniel did, but it's in my notes, so I'm just going to follow that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for Calvary Church, Lord, and uh, literally I do not have enough time today to be able to praise you for the things that you have done in and through Calvary Church and the many, 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 many people who have been a deep blessing to me. But Father God, I pray, Lord, for this day as we study your word, Lord, I pray that you would build up our, us as the church, Lord Jesus, and that you would be glorified, that we would be edified as well. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct us, Lord, that we might rightly divide the word of truth and apply it to our lives, that you would help us, Lord, to rebuke us when we're prideful, to encourage us when we are discouraged, and that you would help us to live this life well, and that in light of all this, we might find peace in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you uh, have your Bibles, hopefully you found Philippians chapter 4, because we're going to read it together, starting in verse 1. Philippians 4, starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syndicate to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, to help these women, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Betty Sutherland's favorite verse. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Now, as we walk through this text, there are many different aspects to peace that we could talk about. And so I want to clarify a little bit of what we're talking about this morning so that we don't misunderstand things. And sometimes when we approach the scriptures, it's often helpful to know the context of things. You ever heard the phrase, context is key? It's very helpful when we look at things. But let's just ask ourselves this quick question. Who is Paul addressing in the book of Philippians? And it's not a trick question. What is it? The Philippians, exactly right. So he's writing to the Philippians, but specifically in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So it's still the Philippians, but he's writing to the saints. Now, this is not some rocket science new idea, but I do want to clarify this because we are discussing standing in the peace of God, getting the peace that comes from God and walking and living by it in our lives. That's what we're addressing in the majority of this text. But as we walk through this, we must understand that this text is written to believers, So if we are talking about standing in the peace of God, there's something that we must understand, and that is that we must recognize that before we receive peace from God, we must make peace with God. 
me say that again. Before we receive peace from God, we must first make peace with God. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that is already true of you, but it's not true of every, little per, every person to, that's going to hear this message. So I want to clarify that. Don't say this is true for every single person if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. And that's a key thing for us to be able to understand. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, at some point you weren't, and so it's good for us to be able to remember this. But if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, we're so glad you're joining us this morning because part of this section also applies to you. Because the only way that we can have peace with God is as Pastor Daniel mentioned earlier in the verse from Romans. All of us need to make peace with God because we are sinners in rebellion against God. Isaiah 53, 6 says that all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Meaning that we have all turned from following God when we choose to rebel against him by our sins. When we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, when we lust, when we gossip, when we usurp God's authority, and when we envy other things. And all of these things are offenses committed against an eternally holy being. And the Bible also says for the wages of sin is death. The consequence of our rebellion is not just a slap on the wrist from God, but rather it is death both in this life and eternal judgment in hell because of a a divine being that has been eternally offended by our sins. But that's not the end of the story because as Pastor Daniel mentioned, the Bible also says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6.23, meaning that we can receive the free gift of God for the forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future by faith in Jesus Christ, not from a self-righteousness, but from the righteousness of God that depends on faith. And when we do this, we make peace with God because instead of rebelling against him, we surrender to him and say, you are the Lord We will submit to you by faith. Now, for a lot of you who are listening, you're saying, okay, this is something we already know. We totally understand this already, and that's good, but we must clarify because everything that I'm about to say in this sermon is applying to Christians. So if you're not in Christ, you can't just take the points that are from later in the sermon and apply them to your life if you're not in Christ. It is foundational that you be in Jesus Christ, and that's an open door. God loves you and wants to save you for all of your sins, just like he saved me, an imperfect man, for all of my sins. The door is open. But before you experience a peace from God, we must first make peace with God by believing in Jesus Christ. And that is a contextual clue that we must not ever forget when the scripture is clear about that. But once we do that, once we do put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what then? Well, that's what our three points this morning are going to unpack. And our first point that Paul makes here in this section of Scripture comes from verses 2 and 3 and is this. The peace of God, the peace that we receive from God as believers, reconciles relationships. I'm going to say that one more time. The peace of God reconciles relationships. Again, coming from verses 2 and 3, where the word of God says this, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche, or Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with, the, with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, at the time of writing, Paul had received a report of the Philippian church from a man named Epaphroditus. And there appears to be some level of disagreement in the report that he brought. He's he's telling Paul about the church, and at some level there's a disagreement between these two women. And it must not have been just a side little small issue, because in hearing about the report of the entire church, Paul chooses to address it, meaning that the disagreement probably was just not minor in nature. 
because it was called out by the apostle Paul. And we're not exactly sure of the nature of the disagreement. There's lots of different thoughts on that. But Paul's response to the women is for them to agree together in the Lord, to agree in the Lord, or as Ralph Martin, one commentator says, to have the same mind. Now, naturally, this does not mean that the issue magically goes away as soon as Paul puts pen to parchment. We know that's not the case. There has to be an application of this command, and it is expected that for the sake of Christ and for his church and the unity of the church, that these two individuals will choose to focus on their unity in Christ above all things rather than whatever disagreement they had. Paul also writes in verse 3, for true companion or true yoke fellow, if you're in the NIV, to help these women in their disagreement. Now, who this refers to is also uh, debated. It might refer to Epaphroditus, who's the messenger from the church at Philippi on the one-man mission trip to go help Paul and then came back. It might be him. It might be another person in the church, or it might be a surname for somebody in the church uh, talking about their name being true yoke fellow. But whatever the identity of this person, the goal is for them to help push these people together in unity. And I stressed earlier the fact about being in Christ because notice he says, agree in the Lord. What if one of those people was not a Christian? Can you agree together in the Lord? No. So we know that the application of this isn't just to say sorry and then just to move on like some people in the world do at times. But instead it is expected that because both of their identities are primarily in Christ for the sake of Jesus and his church, they are expected to be unified in the same mind. Not because they don't disagree, but because their primary allegiance is to Jesus above whatever issues they are discussing or disagreeing on in this moment. And this is an incredible application for us as believers because no matter where any brother or sister in Christ is from in the world or how long you've known them, you've only known me for five years, when I walked into this church, I was welcomed and blessed because we have a unity in Jesus Christ. We have a common faith in Jesus Christ. And that is a connection that is strong and allows us to be united together that is stronger than everything else in the world. I'm personally from Irish background. I know some of you are as well. But what if I came into the church and said, I'm only going to fellowship with those of you who are Irish? How would you feel? Terrible, right? That would be wrong on my part. And I'd only hang out with maybe Charlie Kerr and Eileen McGuire, right, for a few times. But rather, our connection, even though you don't know my entire background and I don't know yours, we've been able to walk together in fellowship because the connection between us is grounded on Jesus Christ. And that is not something that we should overlook in a small detail because that is what allows believers to be unified. That is the primary piece that we are able to say, because I'm a Christian and you and I are united in Jesus Christ, that allows us to be one. Because if we fixate on something else, another aspect of our identity, though it's good, there's not going to be as inclusive of a unity that's there. And it's something that we should remember in our lives. But one thing that's challenging for us as all people because we are imperfect, is that we love to be able to point out each other's imperfections. That might have been probably the case in this situation too. Because we're people that live in a broken world full of broken sinners, myself included again. And sometimes one of our favorite pastimes is calling out one another's failures. We love to be able to say, well, you're a sinner. Oh yeah, well, you're imperfect. Okay, 
Well, you could have done better. Well, you made a mistake. You messed up. Oh, yeah, well, you failed. You ever been somebody that has said that? I have. It's not good. It's not encouraging because when we do this, it takes the focus off of our faults and instead fixates on the failures of the other person. But there is already somebody who accuses every believer before the throne of God night and day. Let's not add to that. Let's not add to that ministry. And the beauty of Jesus is that he chooses to work in the midst and, and on us in the midst and through our brokenness at times. And that's a wonderful truth because God is helpful to be able to transform and sanctify our hearts and to guide churches as they move forward in life. But when we seek to be able to just call out the imperfections of others, we cannot condemn them to a standard of righteousness that will leave us innocent. I'll say that again. We cannot condemn others to a standard of righteousness that will leave us innocent. Because if we say that such and such is imperfect, that same standard is one that we can't meet ourselves. And I don't just mention that, but rather because of that fact, we're able to be unified because we all stand united at the foot of the cross on our knees saying, God, have mercy on us for our souls. Remember the words of the thief on the cross when he says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, being that you also are imperfect in your situation. Now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, and I don't mean to be able to cause anyone to doubt, but rather, one thing that we must keep in mind is that we are imperfect. And one of the ways that the peace of God reconciles relationships is when we deal with each other full of grace and full of truth. And in that humility, there's opportunity for unity. You know, one time my father, when, he, when we were living down south in Arkansas, we, um, uh, he was helping and serving with the Sunday school. And God bless all of those here who have helped out with Sunday school and working with the kids. It's a fantastic thing. But one day there was snack time. And what do you do down south in the Bible Belt before snack time? Any guesses? You pray. That's right. God bless whoever said that. You pray. So we get the pre-blessed food. So they prayed before the snack. And during the prayer time, a lot of the kids, you know, you fold your hands and close your eyes. And one boy opened up his eyes. And another boy saw him do this. And so when the prayer was over, the righteous fervor of one little boy compelled him to expose this little sinner. And he shot up his hand and he told my father, Joey had his eyes open. My father listened to what seemed to be the righteous fervor of this young little boy and then asked him the question, well, how did you know his eyes were open? And the accuser's eyes widened to the realization that he had done the same thing that he observed his fellow doing. But this is something that is humorous because kids are very informative about the human condition. But also, how often do we do the same thing as believers? And the reason that the peace of God reconciles our relationships is because when we stand United at the foot of the cross, we're able to deal with each other full of grace, full of truth. doesn't mean that we can never call one another out when we do something wrong, but it does mean that we do so with love and with grace. And I would challenge you, is there anyone here perhaps in the church that you need to seek reconciliation with? Anyone here that potentially you should apologize to? As 2021 unfolds, it, we can look back on what's been a very divisive year in many different areas of life. But is somebody's identity and worth based on how they handled 2020 and 2021 or who they are in Jesus Christ? 
which one defines them more. I encourage us, church, continue to not harbor bitterness, continue to not withhold forgiveness, and if we wrong people in the congregation, seek their forgiveness. This is my last Sunday here as well, and if there's anything that, some, that I have that I've done to any of you, I implore you, please come speak to me, because I'm an imperfect man as well, and we all need God's grace. Don't let me leave here without that. But in light of this first point, verses two through three, we must strive to agree together in the Lord. Take Jesus out of the equation. There's no way for us to be able to agree together and go through life. He's the foundation, and he's the one who works through all of us, and he's the one who blesses us and guides us in things. Stand firm in the peace of God and let him reconcile our relationships. But that's not the only point in our passage this morning because Paul also continues in our instruction with our second main point this morning, which is this. The peace of God that we receive from him transcends circumstances. The peace of God transcends circumstances. Look with me at verse 4, where Paul writes saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Remember all the scenarios from the introduction about people living for the weekend or technology or work? This is where the life of Christians differs from those in the world. Because our peace is not from the things of the world, but rather from God himself. And notice that Paul twice commands in this section at the very beginning for the Philippians to rejoice. And if you remember the context, the Philippians are enduring persecution and Paul himself is under house arrest. And he is saying that we can choose to rejoice in the Lord always. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if our peace is predicated on Christ, then that will never change. But if we take our peace and link it to the way that the world is going to function, then it's going to go up and down like a stock market on a volatile day. It's going to go up and down. But that's why Hebrews says that we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul in Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing. And that's why he says we can rejoice in the Lord always. Because God is not hindered by the challenges that we encounter in life. We all have ups and downs in life going through things. But if you think of those ups and downs like storms that come across the surface of the earth, we as people are like those that live on the surface. But God is like the sun that's shining above the clouds. He is unhindered by those things. And Paul is choosing to hope in something beyond his immediate circumstances because the peace that God supplies to believers is transcendent above the circumstances we endure. But Paul also mentions that the reasonableness of the Philippian believers should be made known to all. And that's a word that's actually very complicated to translate in the Greek. John Wycliffe said it was patience. The Tyndale Bible said softness. The Geneva Bible, patient mind. The Reims Bible, modesty. The Revised Version, forbearance. The New English Bible, magnanimity. The NASB, gentle spirit. The NIV 84 and the KJV, moderation. So there's a whole lot of meaning for what this word might mean in Greek. And I want to quote one commentator as he explained it because I think it really gives understanding to it. William Barclay says this, quote, The Greeks themselves explained this word as justice and something better than justice. 
People have this word, epieke, if they know when not to apply the strict letter of the law, but when to relax justice and introduce mercy, end quote. It's a really interesting way to be able to describe something, when to be able to relax justice and when to be able to introduce mercy. And as I was praying and thinking about this sermon and thinking about what I should share, I was reminded of a time when I was a kid. Because when I was a kid, I grew up in a Christian home and I had parents who told me that if I had transgressed in this area of life, then I would be punished. I won't say what it was, but it was some area where if I chose to be able to go against them and disobey them, there would be punishment, right? And Jason being a small human, but also a little sinner, guess what I did? You can guess, that's right. I appreciate the laughter, because that means you know me. That means that Jason was like, you know what I'm going to do? No, we're going to forget what mom and dad said. So I transgressed their commandment, and I felt bad about it. And mom and dad didn't know what I had done. And so here am I in this unique situation. Because in my heart, I could feel conviction for what I had done. But with mom and dad, I was off the hook. So what should I do? Should I just go on like nothing's happening, or should I confess it to my parents? And in that moment, I you know, was vacillating about what to do, and I decided, you know what? We're just going to go ahead and bite the bullet, and I'm going to tell my parents. So I told my parents what I did, and in that moment, I was expecting to receive from them the chastisement that they said would happen. But it didn't come. And you might say, well, those are non-Christian parents. They, they should have you know, punished you for what you did. Yeah, they would have been right to do so. But they, in that moment, chose to be able to be gracious to me in that moment, not because I was in the right, but because they wanted to teach me the reward of confession. And that lesson stuck with me. Now, the interesting thing is, later on, when I transgressed the same commandment years later, or a few months or weeks or days later, guess what I wanted to do? Should I confess or not? Well, you know what, let's just go talk to mom and dad about this, right? Because last time I got off the hook. Because I was wanting to work the system. But guess what happened to me that time? I got punished. And little young Jason was thinking, Mom and Dad, what are you doing? I confess my sin to you this one time and there's no judgment. I go over here and I confess it another time and there is judgment. What's going on? But they didn't forego punishing me because I was in the right. But rather in that one instance, they said, we want to teach you the reward of confession. They knew I had done wrong. But they showed mercy, and the Lord worked through that in that moment. But this is why Paul can go on to write, do not be anxious about anything. As he's talking about the peace of God in many ways, we rejoice in it. We also are reasonable because we have peace with God. But also in the midst of receiving peace from God, we are called not to be anxious about anything. Can you imagine life full of anxiety or free of anxiety? Just picture that for a moment. How great would life be if we never had to worry about anything ever again? Well, I tell you, that sounds fantastic. But that's what Paul calls us to do. And not just to say, just choose not to be anxious. That's not the full application of it. He says, rather, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Because we as believers are meant to bring all the challenges and the difficulties that we do endure, all of us do, to be able to bring those to the one who can do something about it. I've tried worrying about my problems in many different times in life, but I've never gotten to the point where I worried enough to resolve a situation. But 
the application of this verse also reveals our perspective on prayer. Because notice he says, don't be anxious in anything, and instead of that, take everything to God in prayer. Which is a wonderful thing, and we know it well. In Calvary Church, you are a praying church. Praise God, keep that up. But also, the reason that this should keep us from being anxious is because it allows us to believe that God is able and willing to work through prayer. Because let's think about it for a second. What if God just uses prayer, hypothetically, just to bless things that already already occur? Meaning that if we take a need to God, then he's only going to work in ways that are not going to change our life in any way. Now, I'm not doubting the sovereignty of God. God's still sovereign in all things. But if we think about prayer, sometimes when I was growing up, I thought that prayer was something that we just used at mealtimes to bless things. God's just going to bless something that's already there. And the way that Paul writes about prayer is that when we go to God in prayer, it is life-giving and it is liberating. Not because prayer is just a good thing, but because literally we are trusting in the God of the universe who is alive and active, who is going to work as he chooses on our behalf. And he's able and willing to do so. And sometimes my heart doubts, you know, God, are you really going to come through in this situation? But remember the words of Matthew 7. When Christ speaks, saying, if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father? We serve a good God, full of graciousness and compassion and mercy, and he is a good Father. He loves the world. He gave his Son to be able to bring about our salvation. He is a good God that wants us to be able to bring everything to him in prayer so that we might walk through things together with him. But do we believe that he is able to act through prayer? Because if we don't, then going to God in prayer will not bring any relief from anxiety. It will actually increase it. God works through prayer. And that's because when we look at this verse and we live out the application of it, we are able to have the peace from God which surpasses all understanding that will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And this is a wonderful verse, and it applies to our lives very, very well. But notice what comes before it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Do not be anxious in anything, but take everything to God in prayer. And when we do these things, we're able to rest in the peace of God. And I think that's what Paul was able to do. Because remember Paul's circumstances. He's separated from the Philippians. He's writing a letter to them. There's already infighting in that church. He's far away. He can't help. He's under house arrest. He's not exactly sure if he's going to get out. He thinks he will, but he won't, but he's not 100% sure. And in the midst of that, he is able to rest in the peace of God rather than being so consumed with what's going to happen at Philippi because he trusts that God is able and willing to work. We often have not because we ask not. Because in my life, much of the time, my anxiety and my frustration in life comes from me trying to control situations. Anybody else relate to that at times? I love to be in control of situations. It feels good because it means that I'm the one in charge. But as a sinner, it's tough for me to be able to yield to God's control because we want to be the ones in control. We don't want to just have God do what we desire. We really want to be in his place and be the one to call the shots. Isn't that what the temptation in the Garden of Eden was? You will not die. You'll be like God. There's a subtle detail in our hearts sometimes 
that we must be careful because ultimate peace in our life does not come from our ability to control everything. We are finite human beings and we can control some things, but ultimately peace does not come from controlling everything. Instead, it means it comes from us surrendering to the God of peace who rules over all and trusting him to be able to work on our behalf. Trust in him and we will have peace. Fight with him for control and there will be pain and anxiety. But God is gracious with us and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. He walks with us through life. He doesn't just say try harder. He is a gracious and a good God. But we must remember to ask ourselves the question, who are we trusting in? My ability to control things because that's never going to come to fruition. Or God who is in control of all things. And a quote from C.S. Lewis speaking about Aslan, the representative, the one who looks like Christ. He's not a tame lion, but he is good. Who are we choosing to trust in? But that's not the only points that Paul mentions in this text. So again, quick review. In the first part, he urges Yodia and Syndiki to make peace with one another. In the second section, verses 4 through 7, he exhorts the church to be able to rest in the peace of God which transcends their circumstances and gives them several applications to do so. But Paul also makes a point in verses um, 8 and 9, which is where our third point is this morning. And that is this, main point number 3. The peace of God accompanies godly thinking and living. The peace of God accompanies godly thinking and living. And this is the section that sounds almost like Paul is literally writing a sermon when he says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Thinking and living like Christ are like two wheels on the same axle. If you don't have one, you're not going to be able to follow the straight and narrow path that God has for us. And that's what Paul is saying here. And also, by context, this is the final exhortation section of Philippians. Everything afterwards, Paul is describing his circumstances sharing prayers for the Philippians, but he is speaking about his joy in the Lord's provision in verses 10 through 23 in the next section of Philippians. So this is kind of his culmination of everything that he has commanded the Philippians up to this point about not being selfish, rejoicing in the Lord always, and seeking to love him in all circumstances. And he's the one who references all of these virtues, truth, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellence, worthy of praise, praiseworthy. And we should always ask ourselves the question, do these virtues describe our thought life? And it's important because Paul again is saying that we must think and act in godly ways and the result is the God of peace will be with you. Now what happens when these things don't characterize our thought life? When instead of focusing on truth, we fixate on falsehood. When instead of thinking about honorable deeds, we think of dishonorable actions that we could do. When instead of pondering life with purity, we fantasize about impure things. When we disregard that which is lovely for that which is unacceptable. When we consider actions which would not earn us commendation, when we disregard excellence. And when that which is praiseworthy is rendered praiseless. What happens, church, when this becomes our thought life? Well, when we do these things, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Again, our salvation is by grace through faith, and it's not going to be lost 
but we must be careful not to grieve the Holy Spirit as Christians because it's going to keep us from resting in a peace of God. And we're all imperfect and struggling against various sins, as James says. But there is a difference between imperfectly striving for godly thinking to the best of our ability and asking God to help and surrendering completely to a corrupted, corrupted and toxic thought life. Like if you think about Cain and Abel, what was the sin that Cain committed against his brother Abel? I'll get some audience. I, that's fair. I've been doing a lot of rhetorical questions. So what did Cain do to his brother? He murdered him, right? But notice God speaks to him before he murders him, meaning that in the time leading up to that, there's already something going on in his thought life. And God reveals the nature of sin in that passage, saying that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, to dominate, enslave, and control your life for the purposes of sin. There is already a battle going on in Cain's mind long before he put his hand out to strike his brother. We must be careful about our thought life because our thoughts do matter just like our actions do. Remember that Jesus said that looking with a woman with lust is adultery of the heart. 1 John 3 says that hatred is wrong like murder. And Matthew 6.15 says that we must forgive each other from the heart and not just say sorry with lip service to each other. All of these things occur both in our mind and in our actions And in verse 9, Paul pivots from godly thinking to focusing on godly living. And he says this, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Notice the parallel wording. Think about these things, verse 8. Practice these things. They must go together. Because Paul does not want the Philippians to be people with spiritual mind but faithless actions. Remember the words of James 2, 14 through 17, when James says, What good is it, my brothers, if a person says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now again, we're not called, we don't earn our salvation by good works. Again, we earn our salvation, we don't earn our salvation. It's a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But we are called to live out our faith. I remember a conversation, sadly, with somebody who uh, went to Moody in the past at Moody Bible College in Chicago where I used to go, and they were describing their current circumstances. And they said, you know what, Jason, I'm in a different spiritual season in my life. And they were walking away from the fundamentals of the faith. And they weren't really getting in scripture. They weren't praying. They weren't walking with the Lord. They weren't seeking his guidance in his life. And it really wasn't a good thing. And this is something that we must be careful, that we never mature beyond the point that we leave the fundamentals of the faith, getting in God's word, praying together, having fellowship, sharing the gospel, forgiving one another. Something that we all must be sober and alert to. As Daniel and John Mealy's men's group discussed, we need to be sober and alert to these things. Because we cannot just have a godly mental perspective about faith. That must be there, but it also must go hand in hand with godly living. Because we cannot continually and deliberately choose to grieve the Holy Spirit of God and then expect to rest in the pleasure of God. Remember Jesus said, follow me, and he didn't just mean in a figurative sense. Every one of the apostles had to leave things behind to follow after Jesus, but it was worth it. 
And that's why Paul can end this exhortation by saying, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Because I do believe that for us as Christians, when we walk in a manner worthy of God by his grace, that there is a divine pleasure that we are able to experience. How many of you have heard of the uh, missionary Eric Little or the Olympic runner from Scotland? A number of us. So Eric was an incredible man who was used mightily of God. He was a missionary in Tianjin and other parts of China for many years. But prior to that, he was also an Olympic runner. And one of the things he said about when he was running, he said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. And that was one of the areas that God had gifted him to be able to use as a platform to share his faith with others. And when he was honoring God and when he was walking well before God, he sensed a pleasure from God. And I genuinely believe that is true in the life of believers. That's what, making Christianity, that's what makes Jesus and Christianity fun. We talk about kids, and we were just talking to them in youth group last night. The reason we follow Jesus is not because it's a hard set of rules, but rather because we genuinely believe it is better than everything else. It is more life-giving. It is worth everything that we endure in this life, all the hardships that we endure, all the things that Christ calls us to be able to follow for him is worth it because at his right hand there is fullness of joy and in his presence there is pleasures forevermore, as Psalm 16 says. And so church, I again ask us, what brings us peace? Because there's many things in this world that will bring us a momentary peace there's only one thing that brings ultimate peace, and that is standing in the peace of God. And it's something to be lived out and applied in our life as well. In Calvary Church, God is working in incredible ways through you. In many of these areas, you are working well. Keep it up. But let's continue to seek for God's guidance that we might continue to press on to love one another more and more and to live out these things more and more as we go forward. And so in conclusion, I encourage you to remember the truths from our text today. Remember main point one, that the peace of God reconciles relationships. That because we're all broken at the foot of the cross, we're able to be united together because we all need God's help in our lives. Remember our second main point as well, that the peace of God transcends circumstances, as verses four through seven say, that we as believers in Jesus Christ have a hope that is sure and steadfast and can weather any difficulty in any storm because it is based on Jesus Christ. And he is the same yesterday, today, today. And what's the last one of church? Forever. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. And lastly, that the peace of God accompanies godly thinking and living. Again, we're all imperfect at the foot of the cross, but if we continually, deliberately choose to be able to run headlong towards sin, we shouldn't be surprised if we feel a grief in our hearts because if we're a believer in Christ, God has given us the Holy Spirit and we can sense it when he's grieved. And so I encourage us, church, that we might choose to be able to live these things out in Christ and to be able to stand in the peace of God. And if there's anybody here or watching online and you haven't come to know Jesus Christ, we're so glad you joined us. And I encourage you, please come talk to us because the peace that God does provide is something that transcends all understanding and is life-giving and is worth it. We'd love to tell you more about it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much, Lord, for your word here to the Philippians. And Lord, it is a challenging word, but it's also an encouraging word. Lord, I pray that you would help us in the areas where we are deficient, that you would lift us up, Lord, that we might cry out to you in the areas where we need your help and that you would be faithful to assist us, Lord. We all need that, Lord, myself included. And so I pray that you would help us, Lord, as we endeavor to be able to follow after you faithfully, Lord, in our lives. 
that we might be able to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and that we might choose to be able to die to self, take up our cross daily and follow you, and in so doing, find true joy, because you came that we might have life, not of a lesser amount, but rather life to the full. And so, Lord, we pray for your hand of guidance and your hand of rich blessing on Calvary Church for the months and weeks and days ahead, Lord, and that you might guide this church to do incredible things for your kingdom and for the proclamation of your gospel. Thank you, Lord. And in Jesus Christ's name we all said, amen.